0: Now entering Nerdist.com
1: Welcome back to the Writer's Panel, and hey, Happy New Year. It's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. As you know, I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had almost a thousand writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows that interest you. I myself have written a bunch of things with my writing partner, Ben Acker, so not just myself. Uh, We were on the writing staff of Supernatural, of Puss in Boots, on a few other programs. Last year, though, 2017 was a weird year. We did a lot of writing, but very little of it for TV. We were out pitching a couple of projects, but I'm not allowed to talk about those yet. But here are some things you can run out and buy if you want to support me and if you want to support this show. And supporting me is supporting this show. Uh, Acker and I wrote two Star Wars one-shot comics tied into The Last Jedi, the terrific new Star Wars movie. One of these is about the salt-covered planet of Crate, which you see in the movie. It is stunningly illustrated by Mike Mayhew, who's done a bunch of Star Wars work for Marvel. Um, there are a few pages in there that are among my very favorite comic book work, uh, that, that Ben and I have done. And that's out now. You can get that from your local comic book shop or at Comixology. And on January 31st, our story about Benicio Del Toro's character, DJ, is being released. It's penciled by Kev Walker and shows how DJ wound up in jail on the casino planet in The Last Jedi. Both of those are from Marvel. Both of those get them in your comic book store or on Comixology. And if you want more Star Wars from Acker and me, you can check out our young adult series of novels called Join the Resistance. It's about a bunch of kids who join up with General Leia's resistance in the time leading up to The Force Awakens. It's Goonies with X-Wings. You're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. The first two books are currently available through Amazon, and the third in the trilogy is coming later this year. It won't be a long wait. Finally, uh, also in comics, the collected edition of Death Be Damned, the supernatural western that Acker and I wrote with our pal, showrunner Andrew Miller, uh, who's currently doing the Tremors series, is now available. It's four issues. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and we're very proud of it. That's from Boom Studios, and that collected edition is also available on Amazon. You want more plugs? Okay, on Saturday, February 3rd, just days after the second season finale, I'm doing a live panel with creator Mike Schur and the writers of The Good Place, including Megan Amram, Jen Statsky, a whole bunch of others, the event benefits Write girl LA, a creative writing and mentoring organization that promotes creativity, critical thinking, and leadership skills to empower teen girls. We're going to talk all about the Good Place's first two seasons. We're going to answer your questions. It's going to be a really fun time for a good cause. Find tickets right now at largo-la.com. That's the Good Place Live Writers Panel on February 3rd. Okay, that is it for now. I'm. Working a lot on two major projects, one in TV and one in comics, and I'm not allowed to tell you about them. But when I am, you'll be the first to know. So thanks for listening to these long introductions, these Mark Marin style rambling introductions. Uh, But for now, I really want to hear from you. What writers haven't I had on the podcast that you want to hear from? What TV are you watching? What am I not asking that you want to know? Email me at nerdistwriters at gmail.com. I'll read all those emails that come in, and some really nice ones have, so thank you guys, and, and I'm going to use your questions going forward. Follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. Uh, like the Writers Panel on Facebook, visit writerspanel.tumblr.com. That's all of the social media. If you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Now, more than ever, I need the sweet adrenaline rush of a good review to distract me from all the work I have to do and the dumb, stupid world that we live in. Welcome. Well, thank you for welcoming me. I'll say uh, to the Better Call Saul offices. Um, what I'm going to do is have you guys introduce yourselves on the microphone so that the listener can differentiate your voices. Um, starting here with Peter, and we'll come around this way. Uh, tell us who you are and how long you have been involved with this show, and and in Breaking Bad too. Uh, I'm Peter
2: Gould. I uh, let's see. I'm executive producer and co-creator of this show, and uh, I started on Breaking Bad. Uh, right after the pilot Uh, so it's that's it's been now literally this this coming year is the 10th anniversary of the premiere of breaking bad so it's the 11th year for me uh, having time in albuquerque at least mentally
3: (laughs) Uh, this is tom schnauz Uh, i've been with breaking bad since season three and with better call Saul since the start
4: Hi, I'm Jenny Hutchison. Um, I started on Breaking Bad right after the pilot as well as Vince's assistant. And then I was a writer's assistant, and ultimately ended up writing for the show, and I've been on Better Call Saul since the beginning. Now I'm a writer executive producer. Yeah.
5: I'm Heather Marion. I'm a staff writer on Better Call Saul. I was not on Breaking Bad. I started season one of Saul as a writer's assistant
1: yeah this is and we should pause here for a second we talked about this the last time we all got together uh, after the first season of saul that like this camp has a, a great uh practice of upping assistance and you are the latest right uh how was the transition for you
5: uh it was amazing <laughs> it was, it was a little daunting you yeah. know because these people are my heroes but um it it's it's been amazing I'm That's very good. lucky. To good be here. to
1: hear. Well, we'll we'll dig in on how the actual room work has been uh, in a minute, but Gordon, uh, I'll,
6: I will continue that that chain, which yeah. is uh, I started I started on Breaking Bad uh, season three as well, but as a PA, and then uh, was Vince's assistant, writer's assistant, and then uh, got staffed on Better Call Saul the first season, and then have been here subsequently.
0: -hmm. Terrific. Hi, I'm Ann Cherkis. I started on Better Call Saul in season two, and I did not work on Breaking Bad. Right. Unfortunately.
1: (laughs) But you watched it. But I watched it
0: definitely as a huge fan.
1: (laughs) Fantastic. Um, Let's talk about uh, just some sort of general things, and anyone who wants to jump in on this stuff can. Um, But I just want to sort of bring the listener up to speed on how the writer's room functions on this show. And, uh, you know, we've talked in the past about the very detailed process work that is done in the writer's room and how much time you guys spend uh, breaking a season, breaking an episode, um, even breaking down a scene. Is that still the case? We're coming into the third season of this show. I think I would imagine you have a, a pretty good idea of where it's headed, Maybe I'm wrong. Um, you are
3: way that? wrong, my friend. <laughs>
6: but is that is that still the process? Is it as intensive as it ever was? No. People tend to get less neurotic as time goes on.
3: <laughs>
6: I mean, I would phrase it in the way of like, if it's not broke, don't fix mm-hmm. it.
4: You know? <laughs> that. So yes, the process is very similar and... and Perhaps even more detail oriented as time goes on.
2: If, if it goes too fast, I get worried. Uh, <laughs> so you know, if, if, at the end of each episode, at least I'm I'm, I'm now finding I have a this this moment of buyer's remorse on each episode so we, we you know we end up going back and these guys are very patient uh, we end up going back over over some of the basics of each episode at the end but and I'm I'm always called kicking the tires mm-hmm. I'm always using this phrase I got to kick the tires on this and and uh, usually there's I'm finding that the tires are pretty well inflated, and there's plenty of mileage on them. So, but it's it's it is neurotic, no, without a <laughs> doubt. But it works. I mean, going back, there's
3: always something to fix, and I think uh, that's what helps us on this show is having so much time to break these episodes, where a lot of other shows, yeah. you make a decision and you have to move on, and it's very hard to go back and correct things that you might potentially see as a mistake. Or that will affect things coming up that could be better if we change something back mm-hmm. a few episodes. Um, and they're, they're often not huge
6: mistakes, per se, but they're like, or they, they, they are, but they're, they're, they're a small nuance that will actually change sort of a, the the psychological dynamics of the characters moving forward. So we'll be like, oh, is there some small thing we can get in the scene that's already there? It's not like, oh, all the scenes are wrong, but just... Maybe we need to amp this up, or maybe we need to just sort of inflect this, and it, it makes a huge difference in the where are in in moving forward. So it's like, oh yeah, that's suddenly the way is clear where it wasn't just by by some small change. You
2: know, we, it's, whenever we make an assumption, we make an assumption about the characters, and then we we go forward and say, wait, there's something something's not quite right. And We had a tradition on both shows uh, of usually reevaluating Act Four uh, of. The, of an episode during the breaking of the next episode, and I, I think Jenny, Jenny was probably the one who was called back into the room while you were writing the most often, saying, "Hey, uh, you know, there's this little little thing," or this happened to me too. And there's always this the writer who comes back in the room. You know, usually if if you're out writing, you know, your, I'll speak for myself. My hair looks a little bit different. <laughs> I have kind of wild eyes, and then I'll be pulled back in the room. And I remember this on Breaking Bad specifically. And then, you know, there's something got just a little change in Act Four. And you get this panicky feeling because you've got it fixed in your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, although I've never seen Jenny panic, I'm always well, the one who panic. I mean, my episodes are always exceptional.
4: so uh, <laughs> no, um the biggest example was a Breaking Bad episode where uh, the one where Walt is chained to the radiator at the shop, and uh, that act four while I was writing, I think outlining or maybe working on the script, they completely rebroke Act four. Mm-hmm. And so I came in and and it got repitched to me. And I think it was that stuff like him, you know, Not, like, getting out of the radiator, basically. Mm -hmm. So, um, and cutting his, I think he cuts his wrist, right? It's really Mm -hmm. gruesome. And I had to have that pitched to me in the room. And then I was like, okay, guys, whatever. (laughs) Right. Then you still have
1: to go off and execute it. But
4: sometimes it's a small thing, like, uh, to use another Breaking Bad example, it seems like a small detail for the episode where um, when Todd kills uh, Drew, the, the little boy that was a that was an addition that happened I think after we actually finished and okay. tied that episode up and I remember George Masters was very much like there's something missing here I feel like we need to go back and that ended up sort of changing the trajectory of the whole season mm-hmm. especially for Jesse mm-hmm.
6: that's really well, interesting I, one time I'm, we tried to. Tell, tell Tom that we pulled down like his entire episode oh, yeah. <laughs> and he just didn't buy it at he all never, we, like, he came never in and there was like an, a blank board we're like see we really felt we needed to we're too like, ambitious right. we, have to we should just
4: take off like an
3: exactly. act and not the whole board <laughs> that really like the
6: act is the yeah. writer's room comedy it's <laughs> oh,
3: <that's>
1: so funny <laughs> a bunch of drama writers yeah. um, I want to ask sort of about those coming into season three uh, what you inherited from season two what you guys as a group knew about season three. And again, I know this was over a year ago, but please try to think back. Um, and, you know, Peter, what did you come into the room with? What was the idea for season three, both for the emotional story and then the plot story? I mean, there are so few shows I can think of where those two things are so intertwined. Uh, it's not. It's not a show about plot. It's not a show about character. It's really about both of these
2: things uh, affecting the other. Wow. But
3: there wasn't a mysterious well, message that. in season two titles that may have led us in a direction, was there? <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: you know, we, the, Tom's referring to, of course, the infamous uh, uh, Frings Back," uh, which was this title spelled out. I would say uh, beginning season three, we had... We had our assignment kind of laid out for us from season two. There was there were a pair of cliffhangers. We had a, a cliffhanger for uh, for Jimmy, uh, where we know that knew that Chuck had recorded uh, his his more or less his confession, and we also knew that Mike. There was this mysterious force uh, that that had stopped Mike from killing Hector, and so that, that immediately, in a weird way, that made I think the kickoff the kickoff of the season anyway. That made it easier. Uh, because we knew we knew what what the characters were going to be dealing with, uh, you know. I think the harder season to start really so far was season two, hmm. because uh, at the end of season one, Jimmy was sort of driving off, and we thought, oh, he's driving off to become Saul Goodman. And once we got into the room, we realized that was just not the right. That was not where he was going. We didn't. We hadn't understood the characters fully uh, when we when we had that thought. So th- this this season, I th- I thought the beginning, you know, right away we had to deal with Mike. Mike figuring out who's who's uh, who's who's on his tail. And we had to figure out how Chuck was going to use that tape. And that was, personally, that was the thing. I walked into the writer's room so worried about the tape because it seemed like...
1: So in the previous season, in the room, you guys hadn't really gotten ahead of yourselves to talk about how that was going to pay off. No, not at all.
4: We had maybe emotionally Mm -hmm. talked about it. So it was like, this tape is a massive betrayal, and this will be the season where it's Jimmy against Chuck. But the plot details of what him actually recording Jimmy meant we did not we had not worked out and so that was actually because i know what peter's talking about about season two being harder to me season three was really hard from a plot standpoint mm-hmm. because the implications of that tape when you see the end of season two you're like oh that's it jimmy's he's got him but that's not actually legally how that works and so we had to and we like to be as close to the truth as possible obviously it's tv so you can't be 100 percent truthful or it's really boring um and so we had a lot of work to do of like, how can we use this and actually make it make sense? And that was really hard because emotionally, character-wise, we're like, we got it. That's the stuff that I feel like we, we really tap into. But that plot stuff and making sure that makes sense as well and that you don't short shrift it is really challenging.
2: I, I love what you say. It's interesting because to me, the that's, you, I think everything you say is right, but I, I, I always feel like if we know... If there's a story problem we can always solve it but understanding these characters just is what keeps me up at night especially understanding jimmy it just it is he's he's just getting a handle on where he is emotionally and what he wants is is always uh, for me anyway is always the biggest the biggest challenge and once he's got a direction to go in uh, it's just—it's all fun. But
4: yeah, I don't think we had that locked down. I just—you know—I yeah, felt no, like you know. we oh, no, had a general, general character arc
3: know. for sure. Yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy is an incredibly complicated yeah. character, and I think having this Saul Goodman in the future just makes it even more <laughs> more <laughs> difficult. Because if we were just going on our own, that'd be one thing. But now we're we're trying to hit this target, which is. And then He's Gene so on that, we have we have Gene in Omaha beyond that.
2: Who's had right. a third
6: yeah. iteration of right. kind of these? Well, let's let's talk persons. about this for a this second. Is impossible.
1: I, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Again, maybe, you know, we said this a couple years ago, maybe you'll, hopefully you'll get canceled before you have to pay that off.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Hooray! (laughs) Yay!
1: Um, But let's talk about these, I mean, all of these characters are incredibly complicated, and I'm curious to hear about the conversations that go on in the room in sort of mapping their arcs over a season. I mean, I'm thinking early in season three, we have Chuck wants to hurt Jimmy, And then immediately in the next episode, he wants to help Jimmy. And these things go hand in hand for him. It's about his execution of it. Um, Later in the season, we see these variations of Jimmy and Saul and uh, Slipping Jimmy and, like, the versions of Jimmy that we've come to know. Can you talk about discovering these characters and sort of figuring out the arcs for them over a season, how how to make that satisfying? I mean, I think that Chuck wants to control Jimmy.
4: I mean, I think it's it's not. Uh, yes, he wants to hurt him, but Chuck's always kind of lying to himself. It's like it's not about hurting Jimmy; it's mm. about what's lawful, mm. and Jimmy is
1: not lawful, and so he has to control him. Is so, that a, is that a guiding principle for a character? Do you tend to have those kind of macro ideas for a character?
4: I don't know if we have like like a, a little chart with rules, but we generally do. Like, we always say like it's not that Chuck. I mean Chuck thinks he's right. And that's definitely like a guiding
6: principle with his character specifically for sure. Yeah, he thinks he's being magnanimous with Jimmy about, about everything and doing doing good. Which I think in terms of like the part of the difficulty sometimes I find is that we can have something where it's like, okay, what does Chuck want? Chuck's Chuck, what does he really want? He really wants to control Jimmy. But Chuck doesn't know that about himself, and so it's the it's the it's the, we have to find the thing that sort of dramatically motivates people, and then the story that they have for themselves for why they're doing the thing that they're doing because it's they don't match up. It's not like well I'm evil so I have to do this thing to control my brother. It's like well I'm doing the best for for Jimmy. So so there's a mismatch between those two things, and finding the two things or more, three things, whatever layers of. of personality that kind of go that makes sense for the moment yeah
3: and you mentioned you know planning our character arcs well we don't we don't really do that we let the characters take us from episode to episode I mean we'll have ideas sort of big ideas we'll throw up on the board but we don't necessarily get to them hmm. the characters tell us where to go to go and as we've said in many many podcasts before it's always about where is this character's head at and that's what gets us to the next moment scene.
2: I think the big thing I learned from Breaking Bad, which I don't think I I knew before, was to be utterly ruthless about throwing away ideas that we like or things, scenes that seemed appealing and things, set pieces and, and big moments that uh, that you have kind of in the abstract when you're talking ahead about the story because... If the characters don't want to do those things, we just, you know, and it's it's painful. And I mean, right now, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about things that we have planned for season four that I am so attached to, and yet I know... I know I know if if it comes down to it we're gonna we're gonna just jettison that stuff and, and hopefully hopefully find something even better well, to
4: use an example, I mean we had ideas for Kim for season three where it was like she's gonna work harder and harder, she's feeling all this guilt about what happened- uh with Chuck, and it's gonna come to a head, and we had ideas for different things that she might do that we ended up not doing. We just knew that general arc of like. Working, working, working herself, essentially, you know, to the bone. And then something happens that sort of has to stop that. And then what does she do in response? And we ended up doing, you know, the car accident and all that. But we didn't know exactly what it was going to be, uh, really, until we got to those episodes. Oh, really?
1: Yeah. That's very interesting to me, because it seems like... In in rewatching it to to talk to you guys today, it feels like that stuff is there from the very beginning, and it all feels so inevitable.
4: We had an idea like, oh, maybe it's an accident, but it wasn't the specificity (laughs) of it, and like, what kind of injury would she get? How badly would she be hurt? Mm -hmm. Um, And then once you once we got into that nitty gritty, because we weren't sure if we would earn it, like Mm -hmm. we had to make sure is she really working herself so hard? And that's why we had the stuff early on with like the montage of her going to the gym to get ready, and you know. falling asleep in the car taking those two minutes to sleep in the car like that stuff
6: because we knew it was going to be something so we wanted to make sure we had earned it. And I feel like in terms of the inevitability of it I feel like I I tend to think of the process almost feels to me like we're going, we we work backwards rather than forwards. We don't say, Oh, we got to get someplace. It's exactly what you were saying, Tom. It's like, where are they right now? Well, in order to figure that out, you have to look at all the things that, that led up all the choices that they made in the last few episodes. And so it's like, okay, they just did this. What does that tell us? And so since you saw the thing that they just did and we were building on it, it feels like, Oh, you planted that to get us here. But instead it's, it's, it feels like, well, we're just, we're just trying to pay off all the things that we know have already happened that we felt like sure. we're right, and what they tell us about the character in this moment and that sort of charts the line.
2: One right. of the but you're great, also moving one, them ahead, yeah. absolutely. But one of the great moments in the room is when someone uncovers something that we already have on the show that we could make use of now. You know, for instance, the. Uh, you know we, we went back to the whole uh, sandpiper lawsuit at the end of season three. And I think I, I'll speak for myself. I, that was kind of on the back burner in my mind. And then at some point the lightning bolt hit, Wait a minute, this guy needs to get ahead. What is there something he could do to make that money materialize? And that was that was a great moment because it was already there. And sometimes we'll have an idea going forward. And we'll, I'll start whining and I'll say, I would love to see this, but I wish we had planted it already. And then sometimes we find maybe we have. Sure. There's, I, I sort of have a question about that,
1: about the structure of the show and in any given episode. Um, and bear with me for a minute, but I think the way that the room works on many shows uh, is mirrored in the show itself. The interest and the almost obsession with process on Better Call Saul uh, is fascinating to me. Uh, We get these amazing montages of how things are done. uh, And it feels very much like it must feel in the writer's room of you guys sitting there and picking apart how a thing is done. Mm -hmm. Um, Structurally, how are those formed? Like In many shows... For example, Kim's Day or or the Sandpiper stuff could be boiled down to a scene, right? But we get to see this unfold in these very sort of minute scenes over a course of sometimes episodes. Uh, how do the how do those conversations start?
2: Like, what's the first thing that you grab onto? Is it let's deal with Sandpiper? I, I think we usually think about what the character what the characters got in mind, and I, I'm I'll. I'll the pro, this is such an interesting question because it goes to all kinds of questions about pace and about what's what's interesting to an audience. And and I, I have just as a sidebar, I think for me, death is thinking. The, the death is when you start thinking: is an audience going to like this? Mm-hmm. Because you have to first think, do I like this? Am I going to enjoy watching this? Because if you start projecting out some mythic- mythical uh, great grand public out there, uh, you're just projecting you know all the things that you're afraid of. you know you're all the things you're, fr- you're afraid of being this or that. So hopefully we please ourselves first. I just think we're interested in how the characters get things done because it reveals things about them. And Jimmy, of course, can't help but see a shortcut hmm. between point A and point B. And Mike, Mike has his own way of doing things, and I I love watching both of them how how they operate. Yeah, we, I was thinking
6: of the the don't note at the end of season two, which led us to the big like Mike dismantling a car, mm-hmm. and we 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 started from the don't note, and we're like, okay, someone put a note that says don't on on Mike's car. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did they do that? We you know we kind of knew we kind of knew going in that it was it was Gus, but we're like, how did he do it? You know, did he just walk up from behind a bush and put the no? Like something had to. There had to be a process, so we had to sort of agonize over like, how, did, was he trailing him? Was he did he have people there? Was there a tracker? And then we're like, we we sort of narrowed down the options. Felt like tracker was the right thing and then we're like okay well, where does he put it he has to put it someplace that's clever and that's that that makes sense for a continued surveillance of this person um and so we had the idea of the gas gap then we're like okay so mike needs to mike has to find something mike's not gonna let this mike figures this out too because he's smarter than us so so we just it's just following the trail of breadcrumbs like okay what's the what we you know nail it down by figuring out Could it be this other thing? No, that doesn't make sense. Okay, it has to be this. And then it's, what is Mike going to do? What is the thing that Mike does that's very Mike-like? And Mike is dogged and persistent and smart, and he is not afraid to just, like, blow shit up, so that kind of led us down the trail,
4: I think. Yeah, we're usually trying to tell something about character with those montages and less about plot. I mean, sometimes they serve as a way to show the passage of time, but they're also building the characters. Like, in season one, we had sort of Jimmy's hustling as a public defender montage. That was really about showing Jimmy and getting more and more ragged as he did this. And with Mike dismantling his car, there's value in showing the labor involved for someone like Mike, you know, and revealing like, he is not going to give up. Whereas you could have just said, he thinks and then you cut to the cars dismantled, right. but it's also showing what a toll that takes on him, and you know all those things, just revealing that stuff about character,
3: while also but, revealing something about the person who planted it there. How smart yep. Gus is, sure. And how you know it's two, two great minds uh, doing battle in this in this great montage. Yeah, setting him up in a really uh, intense way. Uh, I'm sorry, Anne.
0: No, no, it's fine. Um, but also, I would say, um, and again, I, I sort of speak as an outsider even though I'm inside the room mm-hmm. because I didn't work on Breaking Bad and so I came into this process, you know, when it was already sort of fully formed and I had to figure out how to, you know, I had to learn it a sense, yeah. you know, what how to operate in this in this particular room, but what I really love about well, certainly, Breaking Bad and this show is is we also really and I think this comes from Peter and certainly it then came from Vince is this idea of just showmanship and how we really like to find these wonderful ways whether it's you know visual or whatnot to to show these things and um, so we often also will talk about well what is the most interesting or most fun way to show something mm-hmm. and that. You know, you don't, again, see that on a lot of shows because they don't have the time to do that. But I also will say um, to your question, um, I do feel like there's um, this room is full of people who are incredibly uh, detail-oriented and fastidious <laughs> in their thinking. And I think that that bleeds into the show. Mm-hmm. So in terms of seeing process, I think that we all love to see process. And so it just becomes part sure. of the show. So in a way, it's like the personalities and the interests of the people in this room, You know, they reflected in, in the show. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I think I could see that because I came in as, an, as a new person, yeah. you know, in season two. And I loved that because I am also that type of person and there aren't that many people like that. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, I found my <laughs> tribe of people who also obsess over these things. And it's, it just makes for such a great yeah. show.
1: It, it was interesting, in, again, in rewatching watching 301, watching Mike take apart the car felt more like breaking a story than anything I could think of, and then watching Kim change the semicolon <laughs> from a period to a semicolon like that felt like the most like writing I could think of. Uh, it was felt very telling about you guys. Um, I want to ask a few specific questions. Um, uh, Tom, I think you are credited on 302 um, which is the introduction of Gus, it brings Gus back into this world. Um, and that uh, Vince directed that episode right Uh, and it's this you guys have talked about it on the Insider podcast which is great which people should go check out Um, but I want to talk about the scripting of that scene uh, where we don't quite see Gus until we see Gus Uh, it was really interesting and I'm curious about like again what was the conversation in the room what was boarded and then what what did the actual script look like for them
3: Oh, this is so long ago. Yes. I can't really remember. Um, I think we talked about this moment where he's sort of out of, you know, we're, we're on Jimmy's face and I don't remember who pitched it, who it came from originally, but I, you know, we we described this moment where we're on Jimmy's face and there's this figure in a familiar outfit out of focus behind him. And the and the original pitch was that he comes into focus behind Jimmy. Kelly uh, Dixon in the editing room found another way to do it, which was actually uh, more exciting and fun. Um, yeah. But I remember seeing—I w- I was watching dailies, and I remember watching that shot where where it was exactly as described on page. And there's Gus Fring for the first time, and it was it was so exciting. It was more exciting than I I thought it would be, <laughs> be seeing this great uh, one of uh, Breaking Bad's great villains yeah. back on screen. Um, but I, I wish I had more. I no, have a better memory about how that came about. But I to hear that it sort of came
1: in editing, that final version came in editing. The final version was,
3: yeah, Kelly Dixon. And as Vince has described, he saw it and he was like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and then he watched it again and he was like, you know what, this is Kelly, this is, this is great. Yeah, it's a pretty great intro. Uh,
1: let's talk about Gus for a second um, with the group and what role he plays in this uh, season, right? We do know him as a great Breaking Bad villain, he isn't really a villain. I mean, I feel like the show doesn't have villains. You just have complicated characters. Um, so so, what were the discussions around Gus and what role he would play in this world? I know
3: it's hard coming into the next season to remember back. I mean, we had to talk about him as, as not being the Gus on Breaking Bad and, and being somebody who's still finding his way to get to the point that he is where he has a super lab and he has... Ultimate revenge against the people who killed his friend Max. Uh, He's way he's he's years away from that, and there's a lot of, you know, we always described him as the uh, the master chess player, you know, grandmaster, Mm -hmm. and he's setting he's setting the pieces on the board and he's getting them in the where he wants them wants them to be. And the things we have to keep telling ourselves too is that Gus is incredibly smart, but it's boring if everything goes right for him all the time. So we have to find things that throw this great chess player off track mm-hmm. so that's well, that sort comes of
1: comes down to other characters right yes I would imagine yes
2: other smart characters that, yeah. that uh, enter his life he's so brilliant that there's a danger in making him sort of omniscient uh, or, or you know yeah. everything that happens turns out to be part of his grand plan and that's just uh, you know becomes very uh, action movie ish uh, so but I mm-hmm. think the thing that keeps uh, that keeps us, grounded with him is just uh the ca- that this guy has such uh passion and and so much desire behind that that cold mask and 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 Giancarlo this is one of those things where it now that we we were so fortunate to have gotten to see this character already embodied because I don't know I don't know I'm trying to remember what the original pitch was for the character in uh, in Breaking Bad, but now we've seen him for you know many many episodes, and so we we understand him a little bit better, which is one of the joys of bringing these bringing a character like him back. I mean the other the other th- thing that it does though, and in season three feels different to me anyway, because season one uh, is very much. It was Jimmy McGill in almost every scene, and mm-hmm. Bob. It was it was like climbing Mount Everest barefoot for Bob sure. to do all that material uh, in season. one. season two? It really felt like there was it was mostly Jimmy and Mike, mm-hmm. and then also some Kim. And then in season three, we have well, there's a lot more story. There's just the, and and this is something that sometimes uh, I, I personally struggle with because I like feeling that the show is very focused and has and has unity and it's we're not just going cutting around uh from character to character uh but the truth is that the show has gotten the scope of the show has just gotten wider so we have you know nacho varga has has a story and is and is is, uh has is, is a very important character in his own right and you know it, that's that's one of the things that happens as we've uh, as we've gone forward. We know, though, as you know, Gordon mentioned before, we know that this is this is going to funnel down, uh, or we feel that will, uh, as as the story goes forward. I think that's an interesting thing um, that I think a lot of
1: shows wouldn't necessarily do, which is not see a character, a regular recurring character, for an episode or two at a time. Like, is there? an instinct especially for for you guys who sort of have worked on other shows or or network shows even where you have to check in with a character or have you been able to sort of give yourself over to this very unusual sort of storytelling.
4: I mean, we we talk about that a lot. Um, episodes just sort of end up centering if they end up centering on someone and say it's a Jimmy heavy show and Mike's not really in it. We're like, is that okay? And then we actually will look at sort of the previous episodes and just start working <laughs> out the ratios. Uh, we have a thing where we especially care about things like. Who we're going out on for act outs? Who we're ending an episode with? You know, Mm -hmm. if we end an episode with Mike three times in a row, we're like, we we should maybe end with Jimmy. Like, we need to really kind of emphasize that story. Um, But we also are like, you know, if we don't have a story for this character in this episode, or we don't have the space, and their their story can withstand that, Mm -hmm. then it's okay. We know that we're going to get back to them, and we know that we're going to find a way to integrate them. I mean, the biggest one was for season three was we didn't have Mike in the finale. Mm-hmm. And that was a big thing where we were like, can we get Mike in? And ultimately, it, it was a space issue. But if we had had a really compelling sort of story point that we needed to get out by the end of the season for Mike, we would have found the room for it. Um, but we felt that the previous episode had put kind of ended Mike in this really nice way going into... Hope you know at the point, hopefully season four. Um, And so that was a really hard decision, and a lot of people asked us about it. Um, But ultimately, we were like, we just kind of have to have the confidence that it'll be okay. Mike's still on the show, people won't forget about him, you know. And we give Jonathan a little break. So, well,
1: it's an interesting thing as a viewer, I can tell you guys that like we get so invested in these storylines within an episode. Uh, And your scenes tend to be long and, you know, the sequences tend to be long. So we're in a Jimmy story. And then when it changes within an episode to a Mike story, it can be jarring to be like, what are we doing now? And then immediately you're in that story. And so when this nacho stuff started coming up in the second half of the third season, the first instinct is, well, what does this guy want now? (laughs) But immediately you're in his story and it's a compelling story. I'm curious to hear about that character. Uh, And and just, like, again, what was the plan for him? What were conversations about him?
3: I think initially, season one, we thought Nacho was going to be a major character because we thought Jimmy McGill was going to turn into Saul Goodman faster and he'd be in this cartel world. And as it turned out, as we broke Jimmy McGill, his story was much slower and took a lot more time. So Nacho didn't really work into that world. Uh, Eventually, he started seeping into Mike's world because Mike, was getting involved um so we didn't you know again initial plans talking season one we thought oh this nacho varga Varga character he's going to be all over this this story and as it turned out uh as we plotted it just didn't work out that way
2: it's we're very lucky i have to say that our cast trusts us uh and we don't get a lot of i mean you know certainly it's something you know it's, it's it's often a, a call or a conversation to have with someone to say, well, you know, there's not, but you know, right from the beginning, the very first couple of episodes of season one, there was very little Mike Irmintroud. Yeah. In fact, we the original way we broke episode one, there literally was not even a single scene with Mike, and we had to drop something that we really liked to make room, uh-huh. make room for <laughs> make make room for Mike, uh, which I'm glad we did. But so, it, I think the great thing is that those these folks seem to. Um, Uh, Trust the storytelling, and I think that we just try to trust uh, that the story is going to take us in the right direction if we if we uh, if we follow it in detail. And I think you know season I think it was season two is I think was it was was it your episode Jenny where we first saw Nacho's dad, and you know it was it was a there was it was a scene that was very much about Nacho and Mike, and Dad was sort of you know a supporting player, and I think we were all fascinated by. The fact that this guy has a father who's living in the straight world, who doesn't seem to know about his son's his son's crime life. And that gave us, I think, a little feeling of uh, vulnerability for Nacho, that he wasn't you know, he's not just he's not just a straight ahead uh, stone stone criminal. He's got something to lose. And that I think that's that's what we started teasing out. Season three, we got very interested in that. That's always the question for me anyway, is what? Can hurt this character. What? What is? What have they got to lose? Uh, I, I'm really interested, personally, in characters who uh, maybe may seem very invulnerable in some ways, but but the more you peel them back, the more you realize how many tender spots there are and how how desperate they are to protect them and that's i that's that's all, all overall whenever we find that i think that's that's more kind of striking gold yeah and this was something i wanted to ask about i mean season
1: 3 is so much about tearing down jimmy certainly mm-hmm. um and continuing to put him behind the eight ball but It also could have become a series of just humiliations to Jimmy, (laughs) right? Uh There's a danger of that in lesser hands. How do you guys avoid that? Was this on your radar or must have been?
4: I mean, we like Jimmy, so Mm -hmm. I think sort of the cavalcade of humiliations would be mean-spirited without necessarily giving us anything other than just like, look how much we're beating him down. like. We did. I feel like you, you kind of have to just do it enough to tell that story without it just becoming cynical. And I don't think this show is necessarily cynical. Um, and so when we approach things, we never take delight in humiliating our characters. And I think that if we did, then we would be like, oh, then we do this. It's more like, oh, poor Jimmy. I can't believe we're doing this to him. And I think that's really what keeps us from just... Just uh, being mean-spirited in what we're doing yeah. with the characters.
2: We, we have a general, um, a general guideline. I think this this is weak. This is one thing that is similar between from Breaking Bad is that these characters really make their own problems. Ultimately, <laughs> that most most of the problems that these characters have uh, are either directly or indirectly come out of their own choices, and so uh, they're not victims of circumstance. Uh, not not often anyway, and so that's a, because we have that guideline, and that's not that's not the, certainly that's not real life because there really are people who are victims of circumstance, but just in this, I think that we're interested in the choices that the folks make. So I think that's that's one of the things that helps us do what what Jenny was just saying. I also it, it's interesting to me because it's like
6: his wins are often things that actually get him closer to Saul Goodman. Uh, it, like he, if we just shit on him, then he's actually, he, th- that feels like Jimmy territory. But like <laughs> when he says, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to just keep getting shit on. I'm going to fucking be, you know, be the best at something. Right. He takes a turn and he, he conquers and that's great to see because you're rooting for him. But that path doesn't necessarily lead to good territory. Like in, uh, in Heather's episode with, uh, when he gets out of community service, he gets one over on the community service guy, and it's like, well, couldn't you just do community service instead of helping <laughs> a drug dealer get out of it? Like, mm-hmm. So I don't yeah,
5: know. and then we, we look also at what what's pushing Jimmy into a corner, what he's fighting for, and it's like mm-hmm. what Peter was saying, what do they have to lose? And uh, sometimes when the characters don't know what to do, we we ask what matters to them, and and to Jimmy especially in episode 308 he's thinking it's it's kim and it's keeping wexler mcgill he's going to do what it takes and um he he wants money and to back the episode up earlier that's that's what he's doing in the music store when he um does a slip and fall and and gets the guitar from the from the
1: from the sklars yeah from the sklar
5: brothers <laughs> who are amazing to work with yeah
1: um, that's, an, that's an important point, uh, and it was something I sort of wanted to get to uh, as we wrapped up, but, but I'll throw this in. It feels like for Jimmy to become Saul, you have to start taking away the things that make him Jimmy. Not really a question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I'm not looking for information on upcoming Go on. seasons. Go <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's I something mean, we talk about. I mean, I that is imagine. the thing we talk about, is how do you take
4: someone like Jimmy who does not seem very much like Saul. You know, like maybe a little seed and mm-hmm. turn them into Saul and and it's about his anchors. And you know what's anchoring him to Jimmy and and I think we have a couple anchors um and we very much took one of them away this season and that's what that's what that season really was about in a lot of ways um, right. is you know and that's what the show is about in a lot of ways is untethering Jimmy because why does someone turn into Saul and we have a lot of theories about that you know Peter always says it's like uh, are you running away from something or towards something that's the thing we talk about mm-hmm. and you know if you it, th- that's a thing but yes you're mm-hmm. absolutely right and it's a guiding principle for us I
2: think it's, uh, it's uh, that's one of the things we're dealing with with uh, in season four is that Chuck what happens to chuck at the end of season three which was uh one of the hardest decisions uh to follow through and i speak just personally because i've been this this season was the season where vince uh stepped away sometimes and stepped away for you know a a good chunk of the good chunk of the season in the writer's room and so i I hadn't had to make (laughs) A choice that big without without him around and and, and it, these guys were very uh, supportive because I was tearing my hair out because I, I thought to myself, how can we first of all I love the character of Chuck McGill I love love writing him I love thinking about him I know the audience hates him but it's, it's he's he's and
3: we have one of the such a great and, actor yeah, in Michael McKean Michael McKean's incredible
2: and by the way, I will say since this is the you know, this is the the, the post season podcast. That was the great disappointment to me was that Michael didn't get nominated for an Emmy because yeah. I think he really uh, he deserved he deserves it for this show and for also all this, the body of work. I'll just say that, yeah. but that's that. So that was a little disappointing to me personally, but I, not a little disappointing. I'll fucking disappointing. <laughs> uh, but I, it's hard. It's hard for me to. You know to, to to complain about about award stuff sure. so it's uh but it's having said that um it, that was a really a huge decision, but I think we there was just an inevitability to it and i think one of the things that we've realized that's i don't know, I don't think I don't think it's giving anything away is that there's just so much rage in jimmy McGill. uh there's so much anger in this guy, and I don't even think he knows it uh and i it's it's a very it's a very uh it's one of the things that I, I think it's one of the things that we keep uncovering new angles on Jimmy's Jimmy's anger, uh, which comes out in funny ways. And one of the great things that we're all aware of, Bob is so funny when he gets angry. <laughs> he's he's hilariously funny. But just because somebody's funny when they're angry, doesn't mean they're not truly angry. Yeah. And it and it's in a weird way because Bob is so funny. Sometimes it takes um, he the character can be kind of scary too. There are moments there are moments this season more. I thought he was not not in a violent way, but he's got he has a darkness to him, but because it's in the Jimmy McGill context I don't think you completely read it as dark as you might another character, mm-hmm. but it's still it's still there for sure.
4: I mean, when he makes Francesca take that shot with him at the end of the season, that's really a scary moment because he's yeah. using his position of power to manipulate her. Yeah. And that's, it seems like a really mundane thing, but it's, that's a step towards Saul. It really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was like a really distressing moment
1: for me this season. <laughs> <laughs> well, I th- and I think part of that It comes to a question about tone on this show which is another thing that I I wanted to touch on and like finding those moments and making sure that they land as both touching and scary and funny and there's uh, like you say there's anger there there's so many scenes that have all of these things going on um is tone discussed in the room is it something that's sort of agreed upon based on what you guys have discovered as you make the show uh like like where does the where does tone come into the conversation
6: I, I feel like it's it's throughout because we're we're constantly trying to figure out it's not like ah this is our tone and that's off tone it's it really is what peter was saying it's like is this scene too broad is this scene funny is it what he's doing mm-hmm. something that could go broad yeah we don't want him to we don't want this to play funny we want this to play sad or we want right. this to play Real. scary or 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 whatever it's like I think that moment with Francesca, it's like it's a, it is a, it's a scary moment for for him to like be pushing her, but we're with him because he's just sort of had his his hope that that Kim would be like, yay, Jimmy, crushed. So it's a lot of it's feeling those moments that are complicated, mm-hmm. and we you know we put those in the script where where we can to give people indications, and we we have very long tone meetings with our directors to be like, all right, the tone here, we don't want it to to tip this way, or we don't want it to tip this way. We. I don't know. I I feel like we are trying to make sure that every moment feels like it's within a parameter and and is what it should be Mm -hmm. rather than like, well, it can't be that. It can't go. Luckily, we can be like, it can go funny. Oh, it can be sad. Oh, it can be really dark. Like we can do any (laughs) of the things. So it's just what is the moment.
1: Right. Which some, some ways I would imagine makes it harder is like to nail that down. For you guys who have directed Tom and Peter, how aware of that do you have to be? Or do you just do you know
2: what the Saul tone is? Wow, that's what an interesting this tone. You're you're freaking me out with this tone <laughs> question. Don't Cause think because we, about cause it we
3: don't much. think of oh we have a we should do a funny episode or a right. funny scene here. Against it just it just sort of evolves naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean my the last episode I directed skewed sort of heavier comedy, but that was not any intentional thing. It just just where Jimmy was in time, trying to work his ass off and being shit on ended up sort of being funny, so
0: yeah. that's why
3: we went that direction. Sure.
0: I mean, to me, the show, I mean, it's like life. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it—it's very reflective of just what, lo, what our lives are like, or what people's lives are like, is that sometimes it's really funny, and sometimes it's really sad, and, and it just, it feels like because we're just, we're really with these characters and trying to understand them, and so it, it, it's whatever that character is happens to be going through at that moment, you know, which I think is just reflective of, of reality.
2: Yeah, I it's am, a very honest show. I was way. so worried about tone. I'll, I'll be on, uh, just to just to be painfully honest, it, going way back to uh, the Better Call Saul episode of Breaking Bad. That was an episode. That was probably the single most difficult uh, professional experience, certainly production writing experience I've ever had. And part of it, for a lot of reasons, uh, but part of it was that I was worried that we were going to break Breaking Bad. That that was that somehow Saul was going to be too broad and silly. Mm-hmm. And frankly, uh, that was a question uh, from uh, the network. Uh, i don't remember the studio saying anything about it, but certainly a, a, there was they were there was concern there, and I was just feeling very much very uneasy about it because uh i didn't i don't think I understood the range that breaking bad could have and I think Vince did understand that Vince knew. That he liked it's just what I said earlier he knew he liked it, and that he was going to go with his gut and I was just very worried you know we're in the drama and we've got this this crazy guy he just is he comic relief? is that what he is, or am I doing and this occurred to me many times uh, on that show am I doing the show the episode that's going to stick out like a sore thumb later and people are going to hate um, having said that, this show too worried me so much because we go we give ourselves the freedom to go back and forth between stuff that's actually kind of silly at moments and bob loves those and it's fun to write them for him bob said to me once you know this is like this is almost like something we would do on mr show which to me was the greatest (laughs) compliment he could have given us but we also have scenes which you know are just as you know as dire and as emotional as, as 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 i know how to get and and i really wasn't sure that the audience that mythical audience out there would follow along Uh, and when we started season one i you know i really thought that there was a danger that we were just driving the bus off the cliff and but what we found is that you know people if we if like tom says if it feels natural to us uh if it feels it feels like it comes out of the story naturally then we can go all sorts of places yeah
3: as long as it feels real and i think yeah.
2: having Vince
3: involved and and you know what he brought to breaking bad was an experience on the x-files which was a show that could get very comic and very serious and it had this flexibility and i think you know that experience bled into breaking bad and and this show and as long as it's real we can flex those muscles mm-hmm.
6: i think that yeah along that line as long as it's real because i think when we get silly often there's, what, we, what I think we like to do is, is to follow up the consequences so when Jimmy is like I'm going to get it over on the Sklar brothers and I'm going to do a slip and fall he had he fucks up his back <laughs> like he hurts himself we, there are real consequences yeah to it's that. not just oh look he's a he's a rubber figure that just right. can fall at will no actually he's hurt he's mm-hmm. injured so it's it it's the cause and effect of it so like we can get away with I feel like some of the the broader stuff because we go all right well if you actually did that what happens what 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 sure. what do you do there um and that I think as you were saying Tommy like it kind of keeps us it keeps us grounded and I think it keeps it building so it doesn't just feel like it's, you know, weightless and sort of floating away, just kind of moving in a direction. Uh, so I want to ask you some
1: real uh, deep writer questions for our listeners who generally are writers uh, and want to hear about the craft. You can't get too detailed or nerdy about that. But before that, I want to ask you guys about Kim, um, who I'm so worried about. <laughs> as we said, like, as, as Jimmy starts to become more Saul. And we see these amazing scenes like we saw in the last couple episodes uh, of season three uh, of uh, tenderness between Jimmy and Kim. Uh, It's terrifying to me as a viewer who loves Kim. I will also say, uh, I think it was in season two, and I don't remember who wrote this episode, the scene where she is making phone calls. There's a whole phone call montage. That was Anne. Was that yours? Uh, Yeah, two o five. My wife watched that and said that is the realest depiction of work on TV (laughs) I have ever seen. (laughs) She loves that scene. Oh, that's great. Um, But let's talk about Kim as a character and and you know not just her relationship to Jimmy, but you know like what do you guys talk about for her journey? You know, she is. She feels a, a fully formed character. She's not just someone for Jimmy to bounce off of or for Jimmy to, we hope not, lose.
0: Well, I love hearing that. I think we all love hearing that because that's really important to us. You know, that, that Kim is not just uh, a, a part of Jimmy, a reflection no. of Jimmy. Uh, you know, it, it, she's her own fully formed character. And I think that, you know, we, we work hard at that and we make sure that, you know, she has her own... She has her own storyline.
4: I um, mean, I think we try to do that with all of our characters—is yeah. is make sure that everybody has like a point of view mm-hmm. and what they want. Um, with Kim specifically, you know, she was introduced really mysteriously, and we were still kind of figuring out who she might be. We had some ideas. It was important to us that she wasn't just like there living for Jimmy. But then Ray Seahorn came in, and the way she played her informed for me personally and I think for the rest of the writers how we started writing that character because Ray plays her with this very she plays her very controlled and Ray's not like that in real life you know she's very expressive and whereas Kim that's someone who's like locked down um, and does not do anything without really thinking about it and what makes a person do that and so that started kind of informing who she was as a person and you know she obviously has to be ambitious as to where she is and we just start asking those kind of questions and it allows us to do things like when she has a moment of, like, pure joy after she lands that uh, that big account, when she does, the like, the double thumbs up, it was double thumbs up, right? It becomes this amazing moment because she's always so locked down that you see this real part of her. Um, and, and those are kind of the things that I think make her feel like a real person mm-hmm. is that there are those variables. Like, she's different with Jimmy than she is at work. Yeah, especially um, as
1: a professional woman. Yeah. I, I see this all the time.
4: Exactly. And we don't necessarily write, like man, as a lady working for all these dudes, you know, it's hard. We just write the scene and then it kind of comes through in the subtext, you Mm -hmm. know, when she has that big scene with Chuck and he's basically like trying to like, again, as Chuck always is, he's trying to be magnanimous. It kind of plays as sort of like this microcosm of being a woman working in a professional field that that can be male dominated. Um, It wasn't necessarily written in the scene. It
1: just sort of comes through in that subtext. That's really interesting to me. All right. uh, I want to talk about exposition for a second. And Jenny, I wanted to pick on um, an episode, on the third episode, uh, 303, which I think was yours, yes? Yeah. Um, The scene, there's this opening scene between Mike and Gus, and it's when we first really get to live with Gus. Um, And it's really an exposition scene. He's explaining the situation, he's telling where he fits in this world, yet It does not feel like an exposition scene, right? There's a way to do exposition where it's law and order, is you're just saying the things, and it works for that kind of show. How do you guys approach exposition on this show? How do you make it feel like conversation, like character, like all of these things.
4: That's so funny because when I was working on writing that scene, I did not think of it as an exposition scene. I thought of it as a scene where it was like, we have to establish who these guys are in relation to each other because this is the first time they've ever talked. Um, but these are characters we know have this deep relationship from Breaking Bad. So I was really obsessed with um, how do I make this not a Breaking Bad scene, but still keep these characters who they are but it's the you know it's the first time they meet um so i was just focused on that and then the other thing is these are both people who only talk as much as they absolutely have to so um i tend to overwrite scenes in my first draft i just get everything down on the page and then pull it back and pull it back and so that's what it was and i think in a lot of ways that's how we approach exposition is we try to put the least amount of it that we need um, to make it clear enough like it doesn't have to be so crystal clear you just need enough where you're not ridiculously confused and then also try to be like what can we say about
6: the characters while we do this mm-hmm. Sure. and I, I also I think that for, for that scene in, and in general it's also the question of like do these characters if the characters want something from each other then we're we're on solid ground Mm -hmm, but if mm -hmm. they come in and it's like they're just saying things to each other and they don't but in that scene they have such a clear drive like Mike needs to know who the fuck are you and Gus needs to know you are not going to be doing leave Hector alone leave Hector alone so they have a need which I think can organize sort of why any, it, it, Why are they saying this to each other? Because they need to get this information right. from the other person.
2: It's Exposition, and it's an interesting term because in some ways, it always sounds like it's for the audience. Mm-hmm. And if you're writing stuff, I and mean, that's always tricky because if you're writing something, if the characters are saying things to each other so the audience can hear them, uh, why are they saying them? But if if there's information, and it's so important to Mike to understand what the hell's going on with Gus, and so important for Gus to understand Mike, uh, it does. I, I I I hadn't even thought of that as an that exposition. That was
4: my. I had one exposition scene last season that that tortured me more. Um. So that was a surprising question. That that was the one that. You,
2: Are you going to tell us what that
4: was? Yeah, oh, well. it's the scene where Kim and Jimmy talk about the the PPD, the pre-prosecution
1: right. diversion. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was yeah. the hardest one. And that's yeah. That's a lot of technical information.
4: And it's literally it both of them prepared. know what a PPD right. is, so you don't want to be like, as you know.
1: Uh, PPD. Right. How
6: yeah. long have we been lawyers?
1: Right. Um, do you feel that it was successful? Did it work for you?
4: Uh, I think it did. Um, again, I tried to, with it, it was sort of about trying to make it, them talking about how horrible Chuck is. And the idea that the second that Jimmy says what has been offered, Kim understands the greater implications. And then just it being about like, okay, well, now, how do we, How are we going to address this problem as mm-hmm. opposed to, well, what is this information? So that was kind of what I was going through. And also, that's a scene about Jimmy asking for Kim's help without really asking for Kim's help and Kim saying, I'll help you. And so that was what I was focusing on. So it was actually more.
1: a very loaded scene once you unpack yeah. it, but you have to know to unpack it. You still have to be like, so this means he has to write a confession right. and
4: blah, blah, blah. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Um, what, I'm curious to hear about challenges uh, specific to the third season, if you can remember, uh, in the actual scripting or in the breaking of the episodes. Do you guys remember stuff that was particularly tough or hard to come by?
6: It was all a breeze. It's it <laughs> it always difficult. It. <laughs> I think there's always like, oh, God, have we made it wrong turn. Is, why was he? Where, this is... The long joke, oh, it used to be so easy. <laughs> Why is this so hard? I said it three times a day. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the wrong turn is a question that listeners ask me a lot, and it's something they want writers to unpack about, like, how do, how do you have confidence in the choices you make? And I don't know the answer other than to say you just do. You know,
3: like, can you just speak well, it But up? as a group you know some of us can fall into the trap of oh we this idea is working for us we love this but if somebody has a problem with it there's usually something wrong and then there's debate and you start fiddling with it and then say oh wait there i see your point of view there's something not quite right here so i think it helps to have a group of people discussing this and going over every single beat of the story uh, in the amount of time that we have—that that just helps us. It helps always helps. Being, being alone. I think if I was writing a script alone, I would make so many mistakes, mm-hmm. and it just—it mm-hmm. just wouldn't be the same as having the brain power that we have sure. here. Sure, that's, that's yeah.
2: why it's so important that it's at what we call a safe room that mm-hmm. everybody can speak their minds, mm-hmm. and that we don't steamroller. That uh, we don't try to steamroller people is just going along with something because because it's always the temptation is if everybody else likes something and you have this little tickle, uh, it's, it's tempting not to say anything and hopefully when we have the tickles we even if you can't explain what's wrong with it and that's usually my thing is that something something's bothering me here right. I can't explain what and then we talk around it and it's usually the truth is usually nine times out of the ten the the wrong turn that we took is something so small mm-hmm. it's tiny it's a word it's a look or it's just understanding the scene really differently the emotional honesty
3: of a character mm-hmm. would they be doing this thing that's Doesn't feel right we're just making this character do this thing because we want them to well you know what the character doesn't want to do this yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. so that's you have tough. to listen to that and it's it is very hard because but the scene is so cool we want to get there <laughs> Well, but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel real.
1: And I think it's worth bearing down on the 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 way you do get that out, which is just to talk it out, right? Like yes. so much of writing in a writer's room is mm-hmm. like therapy, right? You get to the core of the thing just by talking. I think I, no. Yeah, sorry.
4: No, I think the thing to that because Peter's right is that usually what happens is we're like oh my god nothing's working we took a wrong turn we have to tear everything down and then we talk it out for however long that takes and it ends up being a small detail and I think the thing to remember is to not um, lean into the despair <laughs> of we have completely <laughs> fucked up the story and remember that like you will figure it out the stakes are actually fairly low in the real world and and just kind of like focusing on what are we trying to accomplish? I mean, that's a question I ask a lot when we get to a point where we're kind of talking in circles. I'll be like, okay, what are we trying to do? Mm-hmm. And Jenny
0: often saves us.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, I and I also do the thing of like, we'll figure it out. I try to, say that every now and then sure. where it's like it's something small it's always something small <laughs> but it, it's but, very but, but helpful
0: yeah, when we're all like you know we yeah. are in that very dark just place. these don't things despair. go down <laughs> yes exactly
4: so you want to try to if you're working alone and mm-hmm. something's not working I think the important things to remember are A like Tom says listen to what the characters are telling you and don't try to force them into these boxes and B realize that you will work it out and if you have to bounce it out if you're working alone talk to a friend because a lot of times just telling them what the problem is will actually illuminate the answer for you they don't have to give you an answer you can work to it yourself
2: that's yeah. the most exciting and sometimes i enjoy being here and working on this show a lot of the time and and, and the, the the fun the fun part of it is is that we are telling each other a story and that you kind of go through a sequence of events and you say he's thinking this and then they do this and they do that and you're literally telling a story and then You go back, you rewind it, and you say, well, somebody says, well, what if this? And then you rewind it, and then you work through it again. So, okay, so what if instead of this, this happened? And then you kind of just work out, you just work your way through it. And as long as you remember, that's what we're really doing. We're telling a story. And so we tell the story to each other, and we keep changing it and altering it and playing with the basic premise and, and also remembering, oh, what about that? Didn't he say this before? He said that already. He said that line earlier. What does it mean that we want to repeat it now? And is, is that a, is always the question, is this a bug or a feature is often the question. <laughs> so it's, I, I think that's the other thing is, and I, I like, I love what these guys are saying, is that there's a, I think you use a different part of your brain when you're speaking out loud, and when you're sitting by yourself, I know I do, when I'm, when I'm sitting and writing by myself. And the most successful times I'm writing by myself, it feels like I'm in a writer's room because I'll literally write questions and answers for myself as if I was, I'm kind of always wishing that I was in the room with these guys. <laughs> sure. But I'll write questions and answers for myself and then just kind of try to answer it. But it's, it's a, um, that part of the job is really fun because it's like you're watching the show you're watching all the different variations on the show that you can think of, uh, one after the other. And then hopefully you find the one that's right.
1: Yeah. Um, all right. I have a couple more questions and we'll, we'll get out of here. Uh, Heather specifically going from writer assistant to writer on this show, you know, we've talked in the past about what a democratic process writing, uh, Saul can be, uh, with clear guidance did you feel that coming in? Was it hard to tra- make that transition to someone who now is invited to push on story and ask questions?
5: Yes. <laughs> it was, was it? It was, it was hard for me. Um, I have I had been an assistant for years prior and worked for several people, um, and I hadn't been. I I had always been in a position where it was like. I was kind of prepared because it's like my job to make other people's mm-hmm. ideas work. Um, but I wasn't used to really speaking up and giving my opinion as much. So it was a little bit of, of a transition um, when I, co- I co-wrote 210 mm-hmm. um, with Vince. And, um, you know, but the, everybody was so kind and generous and encouraging that it was my own it was only my own fear that I had to deal with. <laughs> Which but, I think is not yeah. unusual. Right? But I was and, encouraged to speak up and and you know told that it, it was just as much my episode as anybody else's. and Great. It was a great experience.
1: <laughs> Good. Um, I want to now just pick up a couple of questions that we left. We last spoke after season one, um, and um, uh, Peter seemed confused that you guys had made it through the season at all. Um, <laughs> but you raised this question, which I thought was really interesting, which was uh, what problem does becoming
2: Saul Goodman solve?
1: Is, that any, is the answer to that any clearer to you now uh, two seasons later?
2: Yes, absolutely. I think season three was, mm-hmm. and I'm not happy about it, <laughs> uh, but season three as we worked through the end of season three, I felt like the fog cleared somewhat and we still have a long way to go but uh the fog cleared somewhat uh and we've been taught there's clues for the listeners and uh, everything that we've said here today about what our thinking is and how we're going forward but it, yes it is uh it is clearer now uh, but it also there's uh it's not a it's not a happy story it's not funny uh, how he becomes Saul Goodman, even though Saul Goodman, I think, is inherently he's an amusing character. It's not a it's not a uh, it's it's a story that that I find painful, and uh, it's it's an interesting thing to have uh, a character who I think of as funny have uh, a painful evolution. But I I think that we're I think we're on the I think we're on the right track here. What, What's interesting to me, I, I agree, is I think
6: when we were talking about it, it's after season one. I know for myself. That question, which we asked in the room a lot, felt like felt like almost a mechanical question of like, well, it solves a problem because he gets he gets into a pinch, and so he has to change his name, or oh, he has a problem with something, and he changes his name to get clients or something. But I feel like as we've moved through time, uh, with the passage of time, it's become clearer <laughs> that. Uh, ah instead it's an emotional thing or it feels like it's a change in in, within him so
1: yeah and and we should say we like we didn't mention this is the season where we he makes the ads about the ads he has to become this Saul goodman character that must have felt incredibly risky to you guys
4: well what i liked about it is in a way it was sort of like like gordon was saying it was a mechanical reason Mm -hmm. um which is a bit of a feint, you know, yeah. because it, it that really isn't why he takes that name mm-hmm. and, and so I don't know, maybe it was a little bit subconsciously like an homage to all of that. Well, why would he be Saul Goodman <laughs> that we ended up doing that? And then you have that kicker at the end of the season of like, oh no, it's it's this very deep, like yeah. emotional reason um yeah. but yeah no it was i don't know i thought it was a fun thing to do um but yeah of course we were like is this gonna play or not but we well, say that about feel like so many it things it had the
1: weight that i think people would yeah. expect right and that's in the best way it means you get to make this a different sort of journey i mean the identity crisis that jimmy is going through mm-hmm. is so much more harrowing than we saw like walter white go through you know that that almost felt like a natural progression.
0: Well, and I think a lot of that is also it's Kim. It's mm-hmm. it's Kim watching that commercial with him, and yeah. Kim's reaction, and how we left that episode, and just how that, for me anyway, it just sort of reverberated, and it's kind of just it's now just out there, you know, and ha- and then we'll eventually see, you know, we'll we'll, we'll see, you know, he will become Saul, right. but um, yeah, I mean, what I really liked about that was that he did it in in this spontaneous you know it was a spontaneous you know split second decision that he had to make and yet it will reverberate yeah
4: well it's funny when you mention walter white and his journey because for me walter white what happened with him was a revelation of who he really was mm-hmm. whereas with jimmy it's it's it, you know we're kind of killing jimmy yeah you know and so it is inherently a different
1: story and and thus a more tragic one I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you move into season four, um, as you guys are putting together those episodes and breaking that story, um, are there are there things you wish you had done or not done in season three? Did you set yourself up with some uh, challenges? Did you leave a gun in a trunk that you don't know how to pay <laughs> off?
2: <laughs> you know, it, 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 I think the thing... Once we joke about it sometimes, you know, can we go back and reshoot a scene or add a scene or just change this one little detail to make things easier for us now? But that's the part of the, the pleasure of this is having specific rules and having to live by, live <laughs> by the rules that you've set. So I, I don't know. I personally, I don't know if I don't think I have. I'll tell you, my big regret uh, but it, I think it's the right. It was the right thing. Is is what we, what, what happened to Chuck McGill uh, and Michael McKeon? I think it was. I think it has now. It has the feeling of inevitability. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have trouble with that word. But uh, now, but at the time, it felt like maybe uh, maybe we should put this off, or maybe it happens a different way, or uh, and uh, now it just seems absolutely necessary it's part of our lives so it's it's once it's not on, once it's shot on film and it's aired i guess we although there have been times when we've talked about breaking bad because there are characters who we wish hadn't met for the first time on breaking bad so we always think about shooting additional breaking bad scenes to explain this character and that character didn't really know each other or knew each other right. before i always wanted more nudity in season three but just didn't happen well you and bob have a special relationship
1: you do Um, And has it become any clearer to you also about how Saul will meet or integrate with Breaking Bad? I imagine that conversation is ongoing.
2: Conversation ongoing.
3: All right. That that is a tricky one. And we've been talking about that since the show started. Mm -hmm. And we're just going to, again, we don't really plan ahead exactly we just if the characters get us to a point where they're dancing through the raindrops of the breaking bad world then we will do that but if it doesn't happen then it doesn't happen
2: there's a lot of moving parts as yeah. you can imagine it's it's a creative decision first of all but then yeah. there's also you know all kinds of questions about who who what people are available and when and, and and that's that's certainly that's always true uh, on the show i mean we, we there was no guarantee, despite the fact that he put, his name, put Fring in the titles, that we would be able to, able to get Giancarlo oh, back. No. And uh, then was, yeah. so. Pro
4: move there, Peter.
3: Yeah. <laughs> no it
2: one John could Carlo. ever decode our amazing, our amazing <laughs> cypher. It, we used the Enigma machine.
3: But so great to have Hector Salamanca back, and yeah. Don Aladio and Juan Bolsa, and all these... These great characters, Crazy Eight comes back. It's uh, it's been a lot of fun doing yeah. stuff like that.
1: Uh, but and I'll say, you know, as a viewer and as a fan of the show and of you guys, like I'll live in Saul's world as long <laughs> as you want to do this. You know, I don't I don't need them to kiss. I don't need them to to find each other. This is a, a compelling and and emotional and riveting world to live in. Uh, so thanks, guys. Thanks for taking the time to talk about it. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you